Welcome to Still Becoming, a podcast about how it's never too late to become more free, more yourself, or try something new. I'm Monica DeCristina, a wife, mother, and practicing psychotherapist. Through my own journey, starting with my struggles with anxiety years ago, that led to my professional work as a therapist now, I am fascinated with the process of how we become who we are. We will hear from people telling their stories of becoming and overcoming, as well as from experts helping us learn about our own process in the world. We are not designed to stay the same. Our stories are still being written. We are all still becoming. I had the pleasure of meeting Michael Cox and his wife, Coloma, at a therapy conference where he was a presenter and really the pioneer in applying the therapy model, restoration therapy, in work with adolescents. Michael is a licensed professional counselor with over 20 years of experience working with adolescents and their families, individuals, and couples. Michael approaches his own life and the lives of his clients holistically. His practice is focused on serving the whole person and family, and he does it in a way that's compelling and inspiring. He addresses young people with dignity and the goal of helping them live a whole life, to see themselves as whole beings, giving them a chance to address those problems early and work us adult therapists out of a job. We talk about parenting and couples. If you are a parent or a caregiver of an adolescent or a child of any age, this is a must listen. The firm belief in the worth and value of each young person marks Michael's work with adolescents and the full circle expression of what his own grandmother poured into him. You won't want to miss the end of this interview when Michael describes the vital person who helped him become who he is today. It'll make us all reflective on the impact that we can have on others as well. Well, um, I know that we met really briefly um, at the Restoration Therapy Summit in California, which was unfortunately canceled because of the wildfires over there. Um, But I I loved getting to meet you and your wife, Coloma, and just sort of hear about what you guys are doing in Texas. Um, and, And also, I got to hear you teach about adolescence and restoration therapy, which as far as I understand, you're the first person to ever use that model of therapy with adolescents, which is really cool that you're, you know, designing that. Yeah, it's cool, and at the same time, it's kind of one of those things you're like, um, it'd be nice to have some examples to grow up. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'd be nice to have a path to follow there. Um, but yeah. I, I would love just to hear about you, about you personally, and um, just what you do professionally. I think that we'd all be interested in that. Yeah, so... Um, personally, so I don't, this is my second career. Oh, um, it is. As far as professionally goes, I was in uh, ministry vocationally for 13 years prior to um, going into counseling. Okay, wow. Um, I didn't realize that. What kind of ministry were you in? Mostly youth ministry. Uh huh. Um, You know, we did youth ministry, little local missions a little bit. Um, I was a lead pastor for a year and a half and found out really quickly that was definitely not the path for me. (laughs) Um, yeah. so, that's a very so unique calling that. yeah 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 it was and it was not mine so, yes yeah. um we relieved everybody of that, <laughs> <laughs> that. my my husband's um, my husband's dad is a pastor and he said to my husband if you can do anything else do that um oh, yeah. yeah but go ahead so then after no, no, no. being a lead pastor where did you go from there that's when i went back to grad school okay um, went back to grad school, got my uh, license as a, a therapist, and so I um, did some, uh, let me step back, let me, if I do personal first, and then we'll go to personal. Oh, yeah, I would love to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I 
grew up in New Mexico. Okay. Um, Hobbs, New Mexico is where I graduated high school from. Uh-huh. Um, my dad's family's originally from Tennessee, so we spent quite a bit of time back and forth between the two places, but pre- predominantly New Mexico. Uh-huh. Um, is where I grew up and left there when I left college just to um, go uh, to, actually when I got my degree in, uh, my bachelor's degree is in um, uh, religion. I'm like, what was that? Yeah, <laughs> it was so long ago. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so did that there. Yeah. Uh, I... You know, growing up was a very active young man, did different mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. Um, had, a, you know, great parents, all those different things, and had my own struggles as far as a teenager goes, but yeah. um, somehow managed to get out of it uh, whole <laughs> yeah. to, right. uh-huh. to this point, um, but did move left high school and went on to study at Wayland Baptist University is where I got my degree, okay. um, and while there, finished out school, did typical college stuff, and mm-hmm. it wasn't until after college, I went and did an internship at Texas A&M University, mm-hmm. um, in the student ministries there, and then went on a mission trip and met my wife. Oh, um, wow. On a mission trip. That's we awesome. Were both at, yeah, it was fun. South Padre Island, um, uh-huh. we both actually kind of reluctantly ended up there. She had gone numerous times. Mm-hmm. Um, with uh, West Texas A&M, mm-hmm. and this year she was kind of doing some personal things, and her parents kind of forced her to go to huh. get away from things, uh-huh. and uh, so she went, and I went kind of reluctantly. Yeah. Um, uh, in my internship, the other interns were doing, like, overseas and really cool things. I was like, uh-huh. i got to go to Beach Reach, where a bunch of people decided to drink and party. Oh, right, right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that was the one. But I got there, and I met my, my bride, so oh. um, it was definitely worth it, so. That's awesome. That was in two thousand. No, that was in yeah, that was in two thousand. Um, okay. When that happened, mm-hmm. and, uh, we got married in two thousand and one. Uh, you guys, quick, yeah, that. you guys knew. You knew. <laughs> we didn't waste any time. Yeah. It was good. She, uh, I met her in so that was in March when I met her of two thousand. Uh huh. We were engaged by August of two thousand. Oh wow, that's amazing. How how did you feel so sure? What I mean, if that's not too personal to ask, no. what was it? What was it about so, Coloma that you just said? You know what? This is it. You know, it's, it was back in that time, um, mm-hmm. well before cell phones were popular. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Our communication had to be on um, chat. What uh-huh. was it? Uh, chat or some kind of yeah, chat. something like that, uh, right? <laughs> email something. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And so, really, we were in we were you know a few hundred miles away from each other mm-hmm. and. Um, our initial meeting we met in South um, Texas was literally about three to five minutes. We didn't talk long, exchanged information, exchanged information, wow. and just started talking via email predominantly. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in the office of our secretary, where was where we had the only computer was in her <laughs> office, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, and telling her, I said, I'm going to marry this woman. Wow. Um, and it was just through our mm-hmm. communication, we just talked um, via email. And mm-hmm. the funny part of the story is the first time I ever called her, mm-hmm. um, when she tells it, she goes, she didn't even know who I was. Because yeah. um, <laughs> she didn't know your voice, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, your so, audible uh, voice. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it was just through communication. It's a chance that we really just had, you know, we had physical distance. And so mm-hmm. it was a chance to really get to know each other and uh, communicate and found out, you know, what her heart was like and who she was as a person and fell in love with that. So oh, that's awesome. That's such a cool and three story. Three boys later, and yeah. four four cities later, here we are. Wow! So you guys have three boys. How we old do. are they? 
They are 12, uh-huh. uh, 10, and 7. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, active ages. I guess with boys, and I mean, with all kids, they're all active, but, but that seems like they're probably into a bunch of things, and each of them. Yeah, they are. You know, they um, we try to restrict them to one sport at a time. Yeah, and, me too. Um, mm-hmm. School is, you know, they, that's their job, as we tell them mm-hmm. uh, right now, is, is school, and so make sure that's taken care of if we do anything else. But that's great. when they're home, they're riding bikes, playing basketball, chasing each other, fighting, you know, yeah. that yeah. little boys do. Yeah, and and all the stuff that I love that you said that that um, you know maybe we can talk more about that with your work professionally too later. But all the stuff that little boys should be doing, you know, or little girls should right. be doing, having the time and the the margin to actually be a kid and run around yeah. and you know and play at home because so often yep. kids are so overscheduled now that there's just not that time. Oh yeah, yeah. I my mantra or our mantra has kind of been, you know, they're too young for us to be investing all of our time and money in their sports careers at this yes moment. <laughs> right right yeah yeah <laughs> it's, it's not gonna happen right it's too soon yeah um yeah. well then so, so then take us back to you know you're you're realizing as you become a, a lead pastor you're married at this point i'm guessing you have at least one or two or um of your kids born um mm-hmm. and and what what why did you decide you know what i'm going to go back to graduate school and and, and become a therapist yeah, so uh, before we were lead pastors, we were working at a mission uh, mm-hmm. in North Dallas. Mm-hmm. They did a lot of social engagement, a lot of social work with folks. And I think when I was in undergrad, I always knew I wanted to do some sort of social ministry anyway, Yeah. Um, where it was something that was more outside of the walls of the church. Yeah. And this kind of actually kind of affirmed that in me doing that work uh, mm-hmm. there. And even when I was in churches, um, it felt like the majority of the young people, especially in their families that would come to me, mm-hmm. were folks that were outside of the walls of the church, but also just dealing with just heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I just got to a place where I just did not feel equipped. Like, yeah. I'd be like, I, I can pray with you, mm-hmm. um, and I can sit with you, but beyond that, I have no clue what to do. Yeah. Um, and so I think that matched with what I felt were some just, you know, God-given talent. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, you know what, I need to go back to school. Yeah. And that's what we did. You know, in ministry, there was, you know, we had enjoyed our time with ministry. We had great, great time, still in touch with a lot of our young people that we worked with, mm-hmm. um, and really enjoyed that. But I think it was um, in the confines of the four walls of the church just wasn't where my gifting was. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so once we finally made that plunge and tried the ministry thing for a little while, even tried teaching for a year, mm-hmm. um, we were able to say, hey, it's time to do it. And so I went back to grad school and haven't turned back since. Wow, that's awesome. And it's, it's it's so cool that you went into, I mean, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, grad school because you wanted to serve people better, right? The people that yeah. you were serving, you said, you know what, I want to become more equipped to serve them even even better. Right. That's right, awesome. Right. And yeah, when you saw young people and those families, yeah. you know, come to Crossroads. I mean, young people talking about suicide, talking about being, you know, violated and molested. Yeah. I mean, just things that you're like, and they trusted me because of the relationship we had, but I felt mm-hmm. completely unequipped, yeah. ill-equipped to be able to, to help out. So, yeah, definitely went back to figure out a better way to be able to minister to folks. That's awesome. And so then that takes us to, you know, what you do today professionally um, yeah. as a therapist. Tell us a little bit about what you do now. Like, what, who, who do you work with typically as clients? So the majority of my clients are adolescents. I mm-hmm. use the adolescents and their families. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I take on a client, I 
make it very clear to the, the caregivers, whoever it is that might be, um, that this is a team effort. Yeah. And so um, there may be an identified problem the young person's coming with, but we all got to work together. So yeah. it's the majority of his young people and their families. But I see, I see adults, I see couples, mm-hmm. um, but the, probably I would say probably about uh, 55 to 60% of the clients I see are adolescents. Okay. Um, okay. And so um, we, my wife and I actually just launched Whole Life Priorities in January. Okay, um, that's awesome. So it's Congrats. still very fresh. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah, tell me about the name Whole Life Priorities. I love that name so much. Tell me why you yeah. guys why you guys chose that name. You know, some of, most of it came from personal journey. You know, yeah. both of us have uh, family history of, diabetes and mm-hmm. different health problems that mm-hmm. run in both of our families and um you know i lost my dad to a year and a half ago to a complication of diabetes mm-hmm. and um just a lot of different things we've seen it happen and i've always kind of had a life goal i was like i'm just not going to become another statistic and just was okay. not i didn't want to be on that road yeah and so just as my wife and i began talking she had an experience with some allergies mm-hmm. um you know, a number of years ago, I think it was right before our youngest son, so good seven, eight years ago, mm-hmm. she just had a chronic sinus problem and had already had two chronic, uh, two sinusitis surgeries, um, back to the doctors and they were like, hey, we're going to have to do a third, mm-hmm. and she was like, I'm just not doing that, and yeah. when you guys get to talk, hopefully she can tell you more about that, but, yeah. um, and so we sought out other means, and so that began to just shift, and so we started seeing a chiropractor who had a holistic approach to medicine, mm-hmm. and we just started looking at how there were food that were contributing to her sinuses and that was really what was causing most of her problems. Mm-hmm. So an adjustment in the way that we eat, mm-hmm. uh, realizing wow. that physically we had to be at a place where, hey, we had young children and we yeah. weren't getting younger. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so well, how are we gonna keep up with them? And really just got to that place of thinking, you know, for a fam- from a family perspective, mm-hmm. for this to really work, right? So there's times where we would do a diet together yeah. or we'd go on this exercise regimen mm-hmm. and it really wouldn't stick it out in order to just like, Mm-hmm. You know what? But when we do it together, mm-hmm. we really see better mm-hmm. dividends mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. see better outcomes. So if we're on the same diet, if mm-hmm. we're on the same workout plan, mm-hmm. um, if we're in, in diet, I say it's by the way of eating, not so much of being on the diet, but a right. different way of living and eating. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When we do that together, man, our whole life, and we're like, oh, there's a name. Our whole life is better yeah. um, <laughs> right. and, and more sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, that's amazing. Is that is that is that also in in the heart of kind of your approach when you're treating the adolescents? You you know you say to the caregivers like, listen, like you're going to be involved in this too. Is sort of that holistic yep. approach. The whole system has got to yep. be in it. Yep, yep, yep. It's in that very most of my clients are first session. Mm-hmm. Can, you know, it varies depending on what the issue is when they're coming in. But most of them, it's a conversation. Like I just took a new intake yesterday and yeah. said. Hey, I need everybody at the table, specifically mom and dad and the client. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs to be in that first session. Let's talk about that. We need to look at everything. 
right? Yes. What's going on? You give me the identified problem. Right. We need to make sure that know that you are a whole being. And as a young person, let's yeah. try to help and develop that for you mm-hmm. to look at yourself as a whole being, not just this diagnosis or this yes. specific problem, but look at your whole being. Wow, I love that. And I bet that gives um, your clients, and especially young clients who may not want to be there because they're adolescents, um, a lot, a lot of dignity, you know, that you're not your yeah. diagnosis. This is, this is your yeah. whole being, and we're going to look at the whole picture. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if you noticed. I so I think you mentioned this in some of our um, the outline you had sent. Yeah. So I get to do that. You know, my work didn't start in and direct um, clients in as far as the therapy goes. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of it in public. Public health is what got me started in public mental health. Okay. Um, yeah. Tell and me. So, uh, had a chance early on to work with a system called System of Care, mm-hmm. um, where I did youth engagement, so youth empowerment work, okay. and it was just helping young people be a part of finding their voice and giving that their opinions and voice back to the system to better families and their treatment. Wow! Um, and that really kind of got me started mm-hmm. in the mental health field, mm-hmm. and so all along I've been a part of that process of helping young people understand their abilities that are in them they're not confined by a one a diagnosis but they're also not confined by a condition yeah so let's figure out what does that what that looks like and what does that mean and how do we empower you to live a better life mm-hmm. and my goal if i can if you think about it i think i said this at the, the uh summit mm-hmm. you know if we're able to get that ahead of time if yes. i'm able to help young people understand their whole whole beings and that all of their health is important i really we might be out of a job later, right? Yeah, so absolutely. We're not waiting as adults to start yes. dealing with all this stuff, but having better, better equipped of how to live a, a better life, a holistic life um, earlier on. I love that. And, and you're working your way, you're working the rest of us adult therapists out of a job. Hopefully. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, now tell me one question. When you're talking about this amazing experience with helping young people find and use their voices, this is, you know, pivoting it a little bit, but I'm sure most of us who are parents, you know, where I find myself thinking is, well, what could Michael tell us about doing that for our own kids too, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what would you say to, you know, to all of us that are parents currently or are going to be, how to help your kids, you know, find their own voice and to use it? Like, what is some of the ways that we can, not necessarily tactics, but kind of the spirit of helping them find yeah. their own voice? Yeah, I love that question. The, the best, probably the thing I find myself repeating most often to parents uh-huh. is, um, especially for adolescents, right? And so not so much, maybe younger, but it works more about that 13 and older age. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, the, it's the shift from directive, okay. so being directive about um, this is what has to be, this is the road that you have to tow, all these different things, mm-hmm. and being more inquisitive. Oh, um, wow. And so asking questions, because they're mm-hmm. at that age where they're starting to develop their identity. Yeah. And they are just as confused about what that identity is as we are. Um, And so Uh (laughs) they're asking questions. They have questions. Mm -hmm. They want to know what's going on in their body. They want to know what's going on in their minds, all those different things. And they're asking someone. um, And most of the time they're asking their peers and sometimes get decent information, but unfortunately most of the time get bad advice from other developing young people. Um, And so for parents, I say, just be more inquisitive about your young people, less directive. And Mm -hmm. from that, you actually build a partnership with your young person in their development. And they don't feel they're already going to be rebellious or already going to be all those things because that's what the stage of life they're in. Um, But if we can figure out a way to become partners in their development, um, then I think we have a better win with them um, because now they don't see it as, um, as adversarial. 
Wow. They see you as a partner in that process. And mm-hmm. so when I see that shift happen, even in therapy, mm-hmm. um, parents will come in and be like, how did you get that? I said, well, one, I'm not their parent, so right. they already give me a leg up. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but the other is, is really helping parents just be inquisitive about the young person and what who they're becoming and the questions they may have. Mm-hmm. And the other portion of that I would probably say is um, learn to develop our, our shock face, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so when yeah. something comes out that uh-huh. is yeah. going to rub up against me a little ways, right, um, right. how do I respond to that? Because that really, your one, your young person is probably either trying to challenge you uh-huh. or they really do have a question. And if they feel like it's something that's going to get an adverse response, they're mm-hmm. probably not going to have that conversation with you again. Okay. And yes. so how do we open up that door uh-huh. to really just be, and that means if my child's coming to me and they're questioning their sexuality, if they're yes. coming in there questioning their faith, there's all these different things. Yes. That's what they're doing. They're questioning yes. and they're trying to figure it out. And so yes. when we come back as this hard, um, no wavering, no conversation having any of those things, we really kind of begin to turn our kids, our kids away. Wow. And then we we probably start to sever that connection, right? They're yep. looking for a safe place to be able to become who they're becoming. Um, but we sever it with, at times, probably with our shocked face, like you said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And if yeah. you think about it, I mean, as a parent, um, and this was, I think this happens with anything, but unfortunately is when we're dealing with young people and trying to raise them, yeah. um, oftentimes what happens is we have an adverse response because they are bumping up some of our own biases. Absolutely. And if I really haven't dealt with those biases in myself mm-hmm. and don't have a firm foundation in where I am with some of those things, yeah. I'm going to have a negative response to my child. Absolutely. And so therefore, there's a whole other message that's being developed for my child at that point about their identity. Mm-hmm. And if you think about RT, and I know we're going to get into that a little bit, but mm-hmm. if you think about RT, and we look at love, restoration therapy, and we look at that love and that, that yeah. establishment of identity, mm-hmm. man, I am giving a message about the young person's identity and if I'm rejecting at that point yes. then I'm probably helping them see that maybe they're not loved yeah. and so what are they going to develop from those two areas of blame and shame yes by the response I give as a parent wow that's amazing and yes we are going to get into restoration therapy in just a second um, but before we do that I, I love that you brought up um, you know parents aren't aware of what their own biases that kids are you know their own kids are running into can you um, just tell us a little bit about which I, I really subscribe to the importance of doing our own work in order to parent well um, just because yeah. like you said our kids can trigger us easily yeah. at any time um, how, yeah. how important do you think that is in in parenting and I know it's a big question in general to kind of do our own work Oh, yeah. I, I, it is a big question, but I think it is vital. Yeah. Um, and what I think about was, so I was just having this conversation with my wife the other day. Mm-hmm. If you, uh, when I could do a comparison, you know, I haven't done any, any hard, fast research as far as um, studies or groups like that. But sure. just anecdotally with the, the, the clients that I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, families where I see the most gain in progress with young people are parents where they're able to recognize their own pain, first of all, yes. their own stuff. Mm-hmm. and where they fit in those things and what how that's contributing to the relationship. And so they're either able to lean into that and say, okay, I recognize that I'm, you know, I'm kind of having my own issues here and maybe there needs to be somebody else to help you through this process, therefore a therapist. Or they're able to recognize that, hey, we just need some help. We're not connecting with our child. Yeah. We know something's going on and we need some help through this process. Mm-hmm. I see the best outcomes of that because parents are really aware of what's going on. The biggest 
obstacle I think that happens is when parents come in and at the whole, all of the problem is the young person. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, come in, fix my child. Yep. Um, and there is not a whole lot of conversation mm-hmm. around. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah, maybe your child needs some work, but how does this fit into the whole family picture? Yeah. And one of the major things I find myself telling parents is, what do you think the message is to your child when you come up to my office and you drop them off? Come back an hour later mm-hmm. and don't say it, but the expectation is, are they fixed? Yeah. Um, oh, wow. That is a message in and of itself to mm-hmm. a young person that they mm-hmm. are the problem. Yes. Um, and therefore, mm-hmm. my parents are finding an external source to fix me as the problem. Fix what's wrong. Again, goes you. back to contribute back to that pain stuff, right? Yeah. Um, so it's when when those parents, those are the hardest parents because that tells me that they're not really wanting to explore. Yeah. Not they're bad parenting because I don't say that right. um, but it's just where where their own stuff is and what that may be contributing to what their child is experiencing and and that's back to your the whole the whole life and the whole system yep. yeah um, yep. vantage point okay wow and then so let's talk a little bit about restoration therapy which we both you know share an affinity for that model and primarily I mean I'm speaking for myself I'm assuming you too work from that model as a therapist um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I love, you know, when I was reading over your practice site, you, you say we help people walk from pain to peace in their lives. And I know that that's part of the restoration um, therapy model, but, but can you sort of tell us, you know, this beautiful, attractive idea of, of how we walk people from pain into peace? How, how do you yeah. do that? Yeah, so um, I kind of subscribe to this process with the young people and the adults. Obviously, there's some different tactics in getting there with young people than I do with adults. Mm-hmm. But it's really getting people settled in that, um, one, let's, can we get past the stigma that, hey, we're at the therapist. Yes, <laughs> you right. Know, yeah, we're here absolutely. We, we all, and it's kind of normalizing a little bit, we all have stuff in life. We right? sure we do. We all have junk. Yeah. And we all develop ways to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so really getting a client to that place to say, Hey, I have stuff. Yeah. You know, we don't know exactly what that stuff is, but let's call that stuff something. Mm-hmm. We'll call it pain, right? What are yeah. those pains in our lives? What are those things that we find ourselves bumping up against, and how do we respond to those things? Mm-hmm. Um, and just get that really established and understand. Okay, yeah, I've got this stuff, but where would you like to be? Like, what what would the other side of this look like? Mm-hmm. Um, that would be, it would be obviously the opposite. I like to feel better. I like to be engaged. I'd be all those different things. Yeah. Man, that sounds peaceful. That yeah. sounds like you want to be a place of peace or a place of rest, a place mm-hmm. of just being yourself. And so let's figure out how we're going to walk on this journey together. We have to, we're here mm-hmm. because we're at this spot. We're at this, this place of pain and let's figure out how we're going to walk this journey and get to a place of peace. And I don't, I, I don't know if you remember from the, um, the summit where mm-hmm. I spoke about the path mm-hmm. um, and I use it with young people oftentimes and sometimes with adults um, it's yeah. kind of an imagery thing Yeah. and I really use that conversation of let's walk together alright we're going to start here uh-huh. and we're going to be on this journey together and we're going to come to different crossroads in this journey Love and we that. get a chance to determine are we going to go down a path of pain or are we going to go down a path of peace wow. and both which have an outcome mm-hmm. we go down the path of pain right now because it's predictable it's mm-hmm. probably what we think of as safe mm-hmm. um all those different things but man that other journey seems difficult but man but there's something that draws us in that's attractive um so let's figure out what it looks like to walk on that path of peace and we have to pave that path because maybe it's not existing in our lives together mm-hmm. and so 
let's figure out how do we get there. And the more we walk that path of peace, the more it's familiar, the more it's now our go-to, and then maybe the outcomes of our lives are different. And so just helping them figure out what does that look like and what does that look like for them um, and how we're going to do that together. Love that. I love that so much. Um, What do you think um, is the difference between adolescents and adults, you know, in that sort of process? Like what, you know, their brains obviously being at such different places, but when you're working with an adolescent in pain versus maybe a a married couple or an adult in pain, what do you see that, what are advantages maybe even that adolescents have that, that we don't have as adults when they're looking from, they go from pain to peace or disadvantages? Yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of difference. I think the biggest one is yeah. almost what you were alluding to mm-hmm. is um, young people don't have most, let me put that caveat yeah. there. Most young people don't have the history of pain that adults do. Yeah. And so, we, they're a little bit more open and mm-hmm. more perceptive about, yes, I want this junk <laughs> to yeah. go away. Uh-huh. I want this yeah. stuff to stop. Yeah. And so they're much more optimistic about the potential of um, peace yeah. than adults are. And yeah. with adults, sometimes I find we've ha- we have such a history of maladaptively dealing with our pain, mm-hmm. it becomes kind of a security blanket. Yeah, and um, I'm taking that security blanket away from you mm-hmm. um, and trying to teach mm-hmm. you a new way to do things. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. with adults, that becomes an offset because it's like, I don't know, I like my pain. I remember going through the RT training mm-hmm. um, and Terry talking about how we go to our pain because it, it's familiar and actually we kind of enjoy it. Yeah, um, yeah. We, so it's the prison we know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We can put little curtains so on the windows. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Make it very pretty. Yep. Yeah. So adolescents are just more hopeful and more flexible. They're less rigid yeah. in their in their pain. Right. And it's you know with young people, what I feel like we're at a place of things are really detrimental is when that young person just sees there's no hope. Yeah. Um, and there, and that's when we take a further step to try to figure out what's how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And so like the adult model, there are some things that young people are dealing with that we have to kind of get past before we really can dive deeply into yeah. RT. Um, and so mm-hmm. really helping them get stabilized. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And once we do that, then we're able to move forward. But I think what I see time and time again mm-hmm. um, is that, you know, a young person is, is a different voice. Mm-hmm. It's not mom and dad. Yeah. And this person believes in me mm-hmm. and they don't know me. Yeah. And that by itself gets me in where many cannot because it's like, I do, I believe in you. And I guarantee you, if we walk this journey together and mm-hmm. you are in it just as much as I'm in it, mm-hmm. we can get to peace. Yeah. And sometimes that's just all, all, all they need and we're able to get to work. Yeah. I love that. Um, well, so for those of us that are, well, I guess you're parenting an adolescent, I am about to be very soon. Um, and I think that's it's one of those things that everyone sort of, you know, it's one of those classic parent jokes, like, oh, no, like, wait till adolescence, all the sort of things, you know, that everyone dreads and gets nervous about. And what would you what would you say to parents about that? Maybe they worry too much about or what do, what are we not paying close enough attention to? sort of in preparation yeah. for adolescence or if we're already there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think I mentioned this on the summit as well, is we we so easily forget that we were once there. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we were once, and so with our adult minds, 
mm-hmm. we automatically go to all of the potential scenarios, all the potential outcomes, and we want to make sure that we protect you from these things, and mm-hmm. we don't want you to have the experiences that were so harmful to us, and all those different things, yet we easily forget that, man, that actually was probably part what part of what developed our resilience. Yeah. Um, and so with our children, I think it's, and I see it even in myself, it's mm-hmm. like, I want to kind of protect you from all the harms of the world mm-hmm. and forget that, that that's part of the developmental process. That doesn't mean we just let them live fancy free, sure. um, but help them see that as they're walking through that, that that's kind of where that inquisitive thing comes back uh-huh. is every one, I have three different boys and they all are three completely different humans yeah. <laughs> in the way they respond to things, they do things. And so really me being inquisitive about who you are and what's going on in your life and what's happening, where you are with development, I mean, all of these different questions and me being inquisitive about that mm-hmm. gives the person an opportunity to begin exploring those things and feel that it's safe. And so I think for parents, mm-hmm. it allows them to be at a place where they no longer seen as the the nemesis, right? Right. The enemy. Yes. This comes back to that partner thing. And so Mm -hmm. as a parent, I see that with my son. I see, Mm -hmm. I have all these aspirations, hopes and dreams for my boys about Mm -hmm. who they're going to be and what they want to do. And I find out very quickly that sometimes the bills are not aligned with where they want to go and what they want to (laughs) do. Right. (laughs) So outside of it being harmful for them, how do I open up that door to let them figure those things out and let me be a part of the journey? Um, with them in it and so yeah. really just letting them figure out who they are yes. um, many of our parents that come in cannot tell me who their child are is wow. you know they can't give me they can tell me what they're interested in mm-hmm. but they cannot describe the person of their child That's so um, interesting. and so really helping them understand do you know your child mm-hmm. and out of knowing your child we get to respond differently in how we engage with them and and why do you do you think that when you have these parents coming in who don't know their child, do you think it's because they're staying in this sort of directive, perhaps controlling positioning rather than an inquisitive positioning about just getting to know this little person that's in their home? Yeah, I think that that's there. I think there is. I think there is definitely a contributing factor of technology, uh-huh, um, yeah. and it's separated us in mm-hmm, our homes, mm-hmm. and so it's easy for us to go to our room or a place of entertainment and let our kids do their own. Our kids are up on this thing doing whatever. Yep. And so we don't invest the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably still argue though before that, that parents probably didn't do it because of working or whatever, but mm-hmm. um, it is, there's a separation there. And so um, you see it, the gamut, you may see that with a very affluent family that have the abundance of uh, resources at their hands. And so their children have the same thing. So therefore they're left to live their own life. Yeah. Um, and then, yet on the opposite end, parents, other parents who don't have the same resources may be working too much so they can invest as well. And so it's just really finding those nuggets of time to figure out how do I really get to know my child. Yeah, that's good. That's so good. Well, switching gears just a little bit, um, but still in the idea of the family, I know that you um, also lead marriage retreats and um, lead them with this sort of idea of usness. Um, what is mm-hmm. what do you mean by that? I I love that term. Um, tell us kind of what that idea of usness is that that you are trying to promote um, on those retreats for couples and help them discover that sense themselves. Yeah. So we haven't gotten to do one as whole life priorities yet, but um, mm-hmm. it's it's in the in the making. Yeah. Um, so we really that term came from um, I'm assuming the Hargraves are the ones that um, coined it as mm-hmm. far as. Um, uh, mostly mm-hmm. marriage strong mm-hmm. five days all those different things the mm-hmm. curriculum this year at Hargrave has, has been behind 
Um, and the concept of usness is looking at that couple. Yeah. So what is it that between the two of you, uh, the two of you is one, mm-hmm. how is it that you are better and God more glorified with the two of you as, as one mm. than you are separately? Wow. So how do you find what your usness is, meaning that if I was by myself as husband, I would not be as effective, you yeah. as a wife would not be as effective individually, yeah. but together this is where God is most glorified mm-hmm. in our usness and mm-hmm. us being us. So an example is my wife and I, we call our, our usness is hospitality. Oh, wow. Is is just being able to, we love having people in our home. Mm-hmm. I love cooking and uh-huh. serving people. And so my wife is is quintessential um, extrovert in that she welcomes everybody. She's going to make sure you feel good, that yeah. you're comfortable. Yeah. I'm going to make sure all the other details are taken care of. So the food's going to be ready for you. It's going to be on point. Yeah. Um, we're going to eat well. And we're going to have a great conversation around the food and, and engagement. Yeah. And together, that package together man, we oftentimes hear about folks on their own house, we love being at your house, your house yeah. is so welcoming yeah. and all these different things. That's our usness. When we're doing that, we feel close to each other. We mm-hmm. feel like we are really glorifying the Lord. We are really working well as a couple. Mm-hmm. Whereas on our own, if I was by myself, uh-huh. you know, details would be taken care of, but people wouldn't feel very welcome. <laughs> you know, they would, they'd be like, all right, where's Michael? He's in the kitchen. He's not talking right. to us. Um, you know, yeah. as Columbus sure. is just her, everybody would be feel welcome, but they probably wouldn't eat. Right. <laughs> so. right. right. Yeah. It's a perfect yeah. illustration of the, the gifting yeah. that you guys both have together makes this whole new entity that welcome, that you can welcome people into that the two of you. Yeah. Together. Yeah. What, yeah. What do yeah. you think, um, you know, often gets in the way of usness for couples. And and again, as as a therapist, I know this is a huge, broad question that, you know, there are thousands of things can get in the way as, you know, for right. couples. But but what are some of the, the common things that you think that we as couples kind of um, get stuck in or, or, you know, or how we get stuck in our pain instead of being able to move together in that way? Yeah. I think the, the number one thing that comes to my mind mm-hmm. is selfishness. Wow. Right? Is <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. When I am so focused, if you even think about Mary and Martha, right, in yeah. the Bible, uh-huh. um, when I get so focused on what I'm contributing and maybe I don't feel like you are. Right, um, right. And so, therefore, that we have a problem because you're not seeing things my way or doing things my way or whatever Absolutely. it is. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really caught up in how I'm either serving the Lord, serving to somebody else, or whatever it is, mm-hmm. as opposed to, man, what? how are we working as a team mm-hmm. to solve a problem or mm-hmm. to work through an issue or celebrate something that's going on? Yeah. Um, so it's that selfishness about me. And I think the other thing becomes competitiveness huh. um, mm-hmm. to where we feel like we have to one-up. Well, my gift is better than yours, right. or we have to do this. And right. we saw that saw it more earlier in our marriage, but see it now, and it's what we share when we're with us couples, is mm-hmm. um, we have certain ways of doing things. And um, the example would be my wife. I am very, I, I can live in a museum, is what I tell people all the yeah, time. Uh-huh. I, everything has its place, sure. it has to be set a certain way, yep, and uh-huh. my wife is not that. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. I can easily see yeah. where for us, I was like, if our house isn't clean, what in the world are we doing? Right, right. And her uh-huh. mentality was like, hey, it'll get cleaned up sometime, what are we worried about? Right, we're you know? living and, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we could easily lean into one of those, and uh-huh. it becomes a problem when I only see it from my lens, uh-huh. as opposed to how we work it together yes. to figure out what does our home look like for us, mm-hmm. as opposed to your needs, her needs. Mm-hmm. I love that. And do you find that it's important to help couples kind of get out of their their pain cycle, is what we would call it in restoration therapy, but get out of their pain 
and get more into their sense of peace and the true sense of who they are in order to be able to be less selfish and less competitive. I mean, you find that when, oh, pe- yeah. when people are triggered yeah. in pain, it's probably much harder for them, right, to be yeah. um, unselfish and, and, and um, open-minded from their spouse's view. Very much so. Yeah, yeah very much so. Because that, that's really, the pain becomes a blinder. Right? Okay. It becomes a, a, all a complete focus on what my needs are yes. and or what I'm not getting fulfilled yeah. um, as opposed to how do I better open up and we're in that place of peace. Mm-hmm. I'm able to still have needs, right? And it's yes. not that needs are bad. Absolutely. <laughs> I still am able to have needs, but yes. I can better communicate with you as my partner yes. and how do we work together in this process as opposed to me re- uh, retreating back to my pain and my, my only my needs. It makes me think of, I think it was something that Terry Hargrave said, that in order to be generous, there has to be trust. In order to be generous yeah. in, oh, a, yeah. in a relationship, there has to be trust. So right. good. Okay, well, le- one really? last question before um, before we end today is a question that I'm asking everybody is, what's a one person or thing um, or event that helped you become who you are today? And it, it could be anything. You know, but as as yeah. you sort of the the Michael and the the father and the therapist and the husband um, that we are talking with today, what's what's something that helped you become who you are? I, I saw that question and that trying to narrow it down. It, yeah, it was a great, <laughs> it was a great self-evaluating question. Uh-huh. Um, but I think what I landed on to be where I am today, if I think back foundationally, mm-hmm. I had a grandmother that passed away when I was about sixth or seventh grade but um very early on Mm -hmm. she was my my number one cheerleader Mm um you know i look back it's funny my siblings see it as you know with my even with my parents you were the favorite um kind (laughs) Uh of thing (laughs) but from my perspective of what's going on i felt like that there was nothing i could not do Um, i could accomplish anything um in her eyes was that who, you, who I am as an individual, who I am as a person, yeah. is very valuable. I love um, that. And so, you know, obviously at that age I didn't know that, but I look back and that's mm-hmm. what I received from her. Wow. Um, and, you know, I, I tie that to the work that I do mm-hmm. with a young person, mm-hmm. despite what life brings us, if I can come back to that foundational truth that yes. you really are valuable, yeah. you are treasured, yes. you are wanted, you're needed, yeah. and if I can get you back to that foundational truth, Um, man, what did that do to bring your trajectory to something that's awesome? Wow. That, that really blows me away. It blows me away in, in context of what you said earlier about, um, like all, when you work with an adolescent, that part of it is the power of it is that you believe in them. You really do. You see the value in them and that that was implanted in you and that that is part of the work you're carrying out. That's so powerful. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Because you come full circle. Yeah, it's absolutely full circle. Um, Thank you so much for talking today. I really appreciate it. This was really fun. Good. It was was definitely a pleasure for me. For more information on this interview, including a transcript, please go to stillbecoming.net. Please subscribe to and review Still Becoming wherever you listen to podcasts if you like what you heard here today. Thank you for listening.